1999 was a wild year for media in the United States. On TV, it saw the premieres of things like The Sopranos, SpongeBob, Teen Choice Awards, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, The West Wing, Law & Order SVU. Movie theaters saw the releases of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, The Matrix, The Mummy, The Sixth Sense, which I've still never seen because at this point, why bother? Uh, Fight Club, Eyes Wide Shut, Office Space, 10 Things I Hate About You, The Blair Witch Project, American Pie, so many more I can't even remember right now. And video games, what a year for video games. Silent Hill, Mario Party, Roller Coaster Tycoon, Super Smash Bros, Counter-Strike, Unreal Tournament, just to name a few. But for me, there were two moments in media that defined 1999, both of them involving the same man. In June of that year, at the fifth annual Summer X Games, Tony Hawk landed a 900. And a few months later, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater released on the Sony PlayStation. I don't know if I can fully describe the magic of being 10 years old, walking into Blockbuster, picking up this game, taking it home, popping it in, and letting the opening snare hits of Goldfinger Superman escort you into a world of skating paradise. It was amazing. You see, where I grew up, skating wasn't really an option for a variety of reasons, but playing that game and watching the X Games allowed me to escape into a world where I could imagine myself kick-flipping, dark-sliding, and mctwisting my way to glory. I poured hours into that game in lieu of spending time on a board myself, and it instilled a love of skating in me that I still carry today. That love is a big part of why I was so excited to chat with my guest today, Andrew Schusterman. Andrew not only shares that love of skateboarding, he lives in that world. Having made documenting and telling the stories of skateboarders and major brands the cornerstone of his career. It had been a few years since Andrew and I had last spoken, but it was so great to catch up and hear his story, and now to share it with you. Andrew Schusterman, how is it going, man? Man, how are you doing, Andrew? It's good to good to talk to you, man. It's been a while. It has been a while. I'll, I'll intro real quick uh, for people who don't know, which is going to be most of you. You and I worked together briefly. I mean, it was a, it was. I feel like it was a small window, four to six months, maybe maybe longer. Yeah, yeah. We worked at we worked at a company together, and I remember then just thinking, you know, you were doing like social media and a lot of video content, and my background's in photography and video, so I was always super interested in what you were doing. Um, we didn't get the chance to work on a lot together because that company is a whole other story. Maybe we could do a whole separate <laughs> podcast about that someday, right. <laughs> um, true crime style. But uh, but but today we're going to talk about you. So so who are you? What do you do? So I am. My name is Andrew Schusterman, and I am a social media strategist and content creator. Um, I kind of sometimes change my title based on what what is what I'm doing, but essentially that's my main role. Like for my clients is. I help with a combination of strategies, so with their content calendars, uh, helping them with their brand voices if they haven't really developed the brand voice stock and tone. And I do that for a variety of different companies. I have companies in all different industries, but I definitely do focus on skateboarding because that is my background. I started in the skateboarding industry, and so I can continue to have a place in skateboarding. It's just on the social media side of things. And I've been doing that since basically, I've been doing that since uh, I left the company we worked at. I did the same thing, not social media, but after leaving that company of going contract and working with multiple clients. Um, and I think a lot of people out there are, are increasingly familiar with that, right? The whole like gig economy or like, you know, freelancing, hustling, that whole thing. How's that experience been of working essentially for yourself and specific clients rather than like a full-time employer? It's been an interesting ride. Right now, I'm like, honestly, the happiest I've ever been with work. But if I go back to the beginning, when I first was doing this, which was the end of 2019, I had done some, I had done consulting 
back in 2013 and 2014. And then in 2014, one of those clients turned into like a full-time gig. And so I stopped right there. I had like a few things that I did, like even when I was working at companies, just like one client, you know, here and there or a random consulting gig. But it wasn't until 2019, the end of 2019 that I was like, okay, I need to like pick up clients and really like take it more serious, you know, get more than just one client here and there, you know? So now I have four clients, but I, in the beginning was definitely nervous only because I'm so used to like working at companies and like, you know, you're not, I don't have to think about some of the stuff like health insurance and uh, 401ks and all that taxes, stuff, you know, you just yeah. taxes. It's like, so I didn't have an LLC or anything like that. I was just, you know, until 2021, I finally, because I had enough clients and I was doing enough work and I was actually to the point where I'm like, I need to hire someone, which I still haven't done. Um, but I am getting very close to like hiring someone and it was kind of nerve wracking in the beginning. Cause yeah, I didn't have, I had to build up the client base. I had to, you know, reach out to a lot of people, um, like really like put myself out there. And there were many times when I questioned like, is this the right thing? Like, should I be doing this? But as time went on, I was like, okay, you know, like now I have two clients. And then very quickly after that, I had more people reaching out for like one-off projects. And then I realized like, oh my gosh, you know, like I'm basically making, I mean, definitely I wasn't making it right away as much as I was at like the, the company we were at together. But after after like six months, it was like, okay, this is like I'm earning a living. Like it's sustainable. This is, you can actually do this. Yeah. Exactly. It's sustainable and like it's only growing. I started having more people reach out to me, you know, after they knew that I was like available. Like, you know, and, and it and it was it was interesting because once COVID started, you know, sadly, a lot of people like lost their jobs. And so some companies reached out to me because they needed someone like in the interim, or they just needed someone to do consulting because they, they had to let go of their, you know, marketing director or their social media coordinator. So I actually started getting more work, like shortly after the pandemic, just because of all these layoffs and stuff. So um, now it's different. Now I've kind of just picked up clients that, you know, I'm their main person for I have four clients, and I'm on retainer with all of them. It's been going great. And I actually don't see, I've turned down, I've had offers, I had uh, companies, you know, reach out and I applied to one job and actually interviewed all the way, you know, I did like four or five interviews and I started thinking about it more. And I was like, do I really want to commute to this place? Because they were doing like a hybrid schedule, which was cool. And they had really good perks. They had like daycare and like, but in the end, I was like, you know what? I think I'm better off just sticking to this. And if I want to keep learning about social and like stay on the forefront of what is happening in social media, I didn't sure. think like being at a company was going to like let me really do that. Because as like a, you know, as a consultant, it's like, I have to do that stuff. I have to know what's up. Like it keeps me more like on my toes. And so now I, I've had many recruiters contact me over the last, you know, few years, but nothing has been like, and, and I leave it open. Like if, if, if some company that I love so much just came to me, we're like, Hey, we have the best job for you. I mean, yeah, maybe I would consider, you know, not doing consulting and just doing that. Yeah. But until that happens, I'm so happy like doing this and just having the schedule. And then, you know, like I get to adjust things as I see, I don't have that many meetings anymore. Um, it's great. That's true. Nirvana. When you can eliminate all those unnecessary meetings. Yes. The meetings were such a killer. And, um, you know, I think it's just being a consultant, people don't expect you to be in meetings all the time. So most of my clients, I have meetings with them, you know, once a month, 
And then one client who's a newer client, it's once a week and it's, it's really like not bad at all. Um, so I, I love that too. I didn't realize until after I was done working just at a company, you know, I'd worked at like other companies and I worked at a big corporation and God, you know, you'd had meetings to schedule meetings. It was like ridiculous. And I get so much more stuff done now. It's, I don't see how I could go back. All I want to do is build up my own thing and own my own company, which is like what I'm basically doing now. And that's why I formed the LLC, you know, in anticipation for wanting to hire someone or multiple people maybe in the future. So yeah, yeah, man, no, it's been good. But yeah, definitely rocky in the beginning. Definitely. Like I wasn't sure I wasn't used to it. It was like, is this the right thing? You know, like I'm not, I don't have any coverage. And then it was like, once you start getting clients, you're like, oh wait, it's like, it's actually really nice to not have all your eggs in one basket. It's like, you know, I, in this time, in this three-ish, you know, about three years that I've been doing this a little over three years now, um, you know, I lost one client and it sucked. It was like, oh, that's too bad. But at the end of the day, it was like, oh, well, I still have these other clients. This is not, it's not as bad, you know, you lose, yeah, yeah I lost them. And, and then they actually came back to me later on. They're like, oh, can you do some like one-off project for us? It was like, cool, you know, and those kinds of things don't happen when you leave a company, right? you know, they don't come back to you like, hey, you want to do some consulting for us? That's like never, you know, a thing that I've ever experienced. So you mentioned skateboarding. A lot of your clients are skateboarding. And, and please feel free to name drop. But um, yeah, I, I'm going to connect that too with your TikTok because like how long have you been on TikTok? Because I feel like I started following you when you started your TikTok. But like you're like 180,000 followers now or something like that. Like you're you're doing some legit legit numbers. And I started it just because just like any other, I've, I've always, you know, when there's a new social media platform, you're good at your job and you're a social media marketer, you always need to start accounts to just experiment, you know, yeah. and see what this platform's all about. I've started so many where, you know, that platform didn't take off and, you know, but it's fine because it's like, I always have to do this research and figure out if it's even something that maybe my clients would want. And I was already doing stuff before TikTok was TikTok when it was musically, because mm-hmm. I worked for a company called Tilly's, which is this big national um, you know, fashion retailer for teenagers. And so our audience was always like averaging, you know, 15, 16 years old. So I knew that musically was like already a thing back in like 2017, 2018. But I left that company and then just left musically. And I didn't think about it after that. Um, and it wasn't until I left, I, I got laid off of the company we worked at that I was like, okay, I'm going to start a TikTok account because, um, and that was February of 2020 was when I started my like personal one. And then I just started experimenting and I think it was the sixth video that I did or maybe seventh video that I did that ended up just blowing up. And that's when I got like a bulk of my followers. And then it just went from there up and up and up. And yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I spend so much more time on TikTok now for personal social. Um, I spend a lot more time on my TikTok than I do on my Instagram. That's crazy. TikTok is that and like, I feel like such an old person. Like I just have not I've not I've posted one video on TikTok. And like, I just felt so uncomfortable the whole time. I was like, and this was like several <laughs> yeah. years ago, it was two years ago or something. And I was like, it didn't feel like the app was intuitive. Like I'm used to like editing, like in an editing suite, right? Like on my computer. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this phone. I just feel whatever. People don't want me on this platform anyway. I mean to go back and try it because I know lots of people are having great success and building huge communities. But like, I need a master course teaching me what to do because it's it's very overwhelming. Let me tell you not to plug myself, but I'm going to. I am working on a master course right now. 
and it's actually basically completely done. It's okay. 99% done. We're just like working out, like I'm running this course on Kajabi, which is where yeah. a lot of people host their online courses. So um, I'm just literally having a couple friends look at it, make sure I didn't, you know, nothing's messed up or all the videos. So, so yeah, in about a week and a half, it's going to be live. So by the time this airs, this class is going to exist. We'll drop a link in the show notes. You can, you can check it yeah. out right nice. now. You can pause this, listen to the whole thing, come back, but pause it. Look at the show notes. Check out Andrew's course right there. Um, I that is uh, that's very intriguing to me. I might have to check that out. It's been a fun ride, and it's definitely made me invest a lot more time into TikTok because you know I'm just doing tons of research for this course, sure. and, you know, analyzing other accounts and and doing case studies. You know, so it's been it's been a long ride. I've been working on it. It's it's been a, a little over a year that mm. I, when I started it. I didn't think it was going to take this long, but then once you start creating videos, you're like, oh, I got to cover this. I got to cover that. Oh, I should probably do this. And then it just keeps going. Um, but yeah, man. And the nice thing about that, like from a, from a business standpoint or, you know, revenue for you standpoint is that TikTok, I mean, the algorithm and how it works and like the meta of it is always changing. Right. And so by building a course focused around that, you then can constantly update that course and be offering new value and, you know, updated, you know, up-to-date information for people. So it's kind of a, you can move along with TikTok or the other social media channels, whatever they might be, and stay up to date on that and continue attracting, you know, clients and customers. And that's a that's a great model. Yeah, no, it's exactly. And I had a friend who really pushed me to do this, actually, uh, a really good friend of mine named Floris. Um, he has an amazing story. But long story short, Floris runs a very successful online course. He's an ultra marathon runner. Mm, and so okay. he teaches people how to run marathons. And he was just like, man, you're doing all this stuff on TikTok, you know, like, look at where we're at with the world right now. And so in 2020, he's already talking to me. He's like, you should, you should start, like, you should do a course. I don't know if it's just going to be about TikTok or you should do it about all social media, but like definitely do a course. And finally, it wasn't until about September, October of 2021 that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to make it happen. It's cool because yeah, like I already have thought of things that I recorded that now are maybe like a little dated still, you know, like the, the majority, like most of this course is re- is going to be relevant for other social media as well, because yeah. it's a lot of like marketing theory and, and ideas and content creation. So, um, but you know, little things like in the time I recorded the course, you know, now you can have 2,500 characters. Whereas oh, yeah. when I first started, it was 180, which was nothing. Then it bumped up to 300. So I had to make a note about that in one of the videos, like, Hey, just so you guys, you know, no, it's now this bit. And and so I'll definitely have to do little updates, but it's kind of cool that like, you know, the bulk of it is just done. It's just yeah. like, hopefully just get, pa- you know, I'm going to have a passive income from this and also just be able to like talk about it with clients or prospective clients. Like, Hey, I worked on this big project and I'm, you know, I'm an expert in my field, you know? So <laughs> that's awesome, man. I want you to explain something to me and I want to talk about a whole bunch of skateboarding because uh, yes. I grew up kind of loving skateboarding and we'll get into that. But like, Actually, you know what? I'm going to save this other bit. Let's talk about skateboarding right now. What was your exposure to skateboarding? I think we're somewhat close in age. I think you might be a little older than me, but kind of that like 80s, 90s um, era yeah. I seem of growing up. Yeah. So what was what was your exposure to skateboarding? How did you fall in love with it? Man. Uh, okay. So I was in first grade and we had an assembly and that assembly was a skateboard team came to our school. And this was around the time when 
pro skaters, some pro skaters were doing like shows at amusement parks. So mm-hmm. they had like, they had this thing at Knott's Berry Farm. I think they, I think they, they were pro skateboarders, but I think it was, I think it was there at Knott's Berry Farm, but they brought this mobile half pipe to, you know, the quad area of this elementary school. And I just watched these people skateboard and was like blown away. Cause you know, of course you I'd seen skateboarding maybe before, you know, like because of like Bart Simpson and popular culture, but like right. really my exposure was pretty limited. And then to see it in person, like go from never having really watched it to seeing it in person, I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. But then, you know, I think uh, I had neighbors who were starting to pick up skateboarding and this is like the early nineties, but my parents were like, no, you're not doing that. You know, it's too dangerous. Uh, you're sticking to like traditional sports. So then I, I left it and then it was around like the sixth grade where I was like, man, like more people are skating. I really want to do this. I really like what, like, you know, I, one friend had a skateboard and he let me try it. Another friend was getting really good and was, I was like, I got it. I want to do this. And I finally convinced my parents to get me a skateboard. And so I started skate, I actually really started skating. It was like 1996. And that was when I was in the seventh grade. I had like just turned 13 and I got it for my birthday. So yeah, it was like very special, you know, like I, I worked really hard. I worked like uh, for the good part of a year trying to convince my parents to like, let me have it. And then just, you know, con- just constantly being shut down. And then finally like, okay, you can do it, but you have to wear a helmet. You have to wear knee pads, elbow pads. So I got all the gear. I had all that stuff. And sure enough, as soon as I started skating and realizing that nobody in my group, you know, group of friends was wearing their helmets and all that. I didn't want to look like a dork, you know, at the time I think. Right, right. So I was like, all right, I'm ditching this stuff. I just won't tell my parents. Um, it's like, put it on as you leave in the house and you get around yeah, the corner. Yeah, leaving the house, yeah. literally throw it in. I had, a, I had, we had like bushes that were really big next yeah. to the house. I would just shove them in the bushes and they would just get stuck there. So then I would take them out when I got home and be like, okay, I'm back, you know, back yeah. from skateboarding. I'll, you know, Ooh, this helmet's been real tight, mom. <laughs> Let me take this off. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, sometimes I would get injured and they'd be like, how did you get hurt like that? I thought you were wearing knee pads or, yeah, I don't know. It's wild, you know? And I think they knew I wasn't wearing them. Right, they, right. I, but I was just in my head. I'm just like, just lie, just lie. You don't want your, you know, I don't want yeah. my skateboarding getting getting taken away. So yeah, I grew up in Southern California too. So I was around a lot of, that's the other thing. I know that I'm really fortunate to where I grew up because this is where a majority of the skateboard industry yeah. is. So, you know, once I started skating, it was only like, Within the first like year, year and a half of skating, I was already like seeing pro skateboarders at skate spots and, you know, at local skate. And it was just like, which still like was mind blowing. It was like, oh my God, you know, I remember the first pro skater I met was this, was Eric Ellington. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I just watched his video part that come out and zero had just let released misled youth and i was just like in love with that video and then i see this guy in person and i'm just like oh my god this is so cool but yeah definitely definitely was you know it helped me get into skateboarding i think even more just because so many people did it around me and the industry was here so it was like oh cool you know you always knew it was around um so just encouraged me to want to keep going at it that's what was difficult for me getting into skateboarding like in the 90s, like, you know, it was around the time, I guess, where skateboarding, I don't remember what wave it would have been, was making that kind of resurgence, like X Games, you know, mid to late 90s. 
Um, and I remember seeing it on the X Games and going like, what is this? That looks so cool. And same kind of thing. Can I have a skateboard? I think I got one for like my eighth birthday or something. It was a crappy, uh, it was it was so bad. It was like the generic like Walmart skateboard, right? Yeah. And so I'd like yep. ride it, but all my friends in the neighborhood had bikes and I obviously wasn't keeping up with that. Our roads were not smooth. So like, you know, holding on to the back of somebody's bike wasn't an option. And I just stopped doing it because like geographically it just didn't work we didn't have a skate park in houston that i was aware of i'm sure there were people who were skating and going you know to garage and stuff like that but just for like a kid in like elementary school junior high there wasn't that exposure so i kind of like fell off of it but i went through that hardcore phase you know late 90s tony hawk's pro skater came out tony landed the 900 right like so you know i was watching all these guys just thinking man that must be the greatest thing in the world but it was like this distant thing that other people got to do because there wasn't a place to do it. And I didn't get that sense of how geographically specific it was until Tony Hawk's documentary this, I guess this past year dropped on HBO. Have you watched that yet? I did. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It was really, really good. It was fantastic. But like I, I had, you still know you, you, the, the history of it in California and local skate parks and like the whole rise and fall and rise and fall. Um, so yeah, it's, it's must be awesome to have grown up in a place, not just where you could literally physically do that because space allowed, but where um, such a culturally important thing was happening and you could partake in it. Yeah. I, and, and it like really, I mean, like I fell in love with skating and like, I think early on, you know, I knew I was always going to like doing it, but I definitely knew that I was never going to get sponsored. Like it wasn't even a thing in my mind. It was like, all right, I'm good enough, but I'm never, I'm, this isn't like my thing. And so I just started getting, you know, more interested in like the culture of skating, the history of skateboarding. And so starting to learn that like, you know, really famous skate parks were that were shut down when skateboarding kind of when vert died in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, so there's like, you know, there's these like, famous skate parks that existed, but they were, they had all been torn down. And in some ways I was like, damn, you know, I wish I had started skating in the seventies, which is impossible because I was born in the eighties, but still you kind of long for like, Oh, it would have been so cool to skate, you know, the big O in orange yeah. or Del Mar skate ranch. And then, and none of that existed. And there were barely any skate parks when I started skating. Like there were, there were like no public parks um, until maybe the second or third year I was skating. We had the van skate park in this mall in the city of orange and you had to pay to go there. So it wasn't like, you know, you couldn't go there often um, cause it was expensive, but it, it was like growing up at first was like, I felt like I was uh yeah, you had like relics around you, like, oh, this is where this used to be. This and, and and then you find yourself and you're like, you know what? I love street skating. And like then I got more into street skating and was like, okay, well, that history is so cool, but like, you know, skateboarding is continuing to move forward. And I'm like in that time, you know, realizing this and like finding myself basically just falling more and more in love with it and just wanting to know everything about skating. Yeah. You know, like I wanted to know everything. I wanted to like know everything about everybody, read every interview and in every magazine, like really like soak it up, you know? Yeah. Like I, I fell out of it until like college. So early two thousands, like Oh eight, Oh nine. And I went to a small school on a small campus and I'd had this element board that I got in high school that I didn't ride that much. But like then I was at college and like the we had big sidewalks and they were smooth. So I started riding and took it like I hadn't I hadn't ridden a skateboard in a decade, I think, at that point. Um almost because I like stopped when I was like eight or nine. And so, but it was awesome because I would just ride all around campus. But like, and it was just so fun. Like it was just so fun. Um, but for the life of me, here's another master course I need. I have never been able to Ollie. Like, and I have watched stupid videos. I've had people try and help me. And I'm like, what is it about my body that cannot mentally, and like, I understand the physics of like how, and I, 
fucking can't. And so let me know when your next course comes out so I can finally learn to freaking Ollie and I'll get my skateboard out again. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of Tony Hawk, he has a master course. I've, I've not seen it, but it's been advertised to me, especially on YouTube. Uh, but he has a master course and he like has other, you know, pro skaters that are in there that he's friends with teaching stuff. But I will say the Ollie, I can't say for everybody because there's definitely, obviously, once you learn how to do an Ollie, you learn other tricks and there are much harder tricks. But for me, that was the hardest trick to learn. And it was like, until you got it down, you couldn't do a lot. At, you know, I couldn't right. do a kickflip. You couldn't do like, you couldn't grind things because you couldn't get onto them. You couldn't go up curbs, you know, and, but it was like brutal. I remember learning it because it was like, first you learn it standing still. Then it's like, oh God, now I got to move and do it, you know? And, but I, I honestly, I feel like that was the hardest trick I ever learned because yeah. once I learned that other tricks were difficult, but it was like, I had to get the Ollie and then it opened up, you know, it opened up like the possibilities to so many other tricks. And then it was like, Oh, I can kick them. I can heal them. I can 50, 50 now. Like, you know, but yeah, Ollie's no joke. It is not as easy as pe people probably think it's like, Oh, whatever. You just like kick the tail and then drag the other foot. But it's, it's like, there's something else. It's more than that. Yeah. There, there's nothing more deflating than feeling just like really good kind of cruising, moving in and out of people, you know, whatever. And then you reach a curb and you stop and you pick up your skateboard and you put it on the curb and then you keep going. It's just like, Oh God, I hope nobody saw me. Um, so yeah, you know, there's still time. I'm still young ish. Uh, you know, might get back out there and give it a go. I've heard these amazing stories and seen videos of like people in their seventies, like who just found skateboarding super late in life and just started skating. So I remember seeing this video that like went viral of this old man skating and he is literally, I think he was in his mid seventies, but it's so cool to watch. Cause he's like in heaven, you can see yeah. it in his face. It's just like, this is amazing. Like, you know, he probably wishes he had picked it up earlier in life, but still, you know, even in his seventies, he was, a he's able to do it. So yeah, never, you know, you may not, you, you know, I doubt he's going to be jumping downstairs anytime soon or sure. handrails, but you know, he's able to do simple enough tricks and, ride around and just learn you know carve and stuff like that so yeah man it's a little too late for me to go to warp tour and you know like like roll up on the on the rancid warp tour but <laughs> yeah uh, yeah you know but the dream's not dead so it, it could still happen no it's not dead it. yeah you might not have nike knocking at your door anytime soon to, for a sponsorship but you can still learn stuff even though we're older i mean you know sadly i've definitely lost a lot of my skill as a skateboarder and I think just losing your, you know, your equilibrium gets worse as you get older yeah. and you get heavier when you're older and just so much doesn't work as well, but I still love it. And I suck way more than I did when I was younger, but I still like really like when I'm on a skateboard, it's like, okay, you still have that feeling like this fucking rules. Like I love yeah. this. This episode brought to you by Centrum Silver. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you're older getting there, take some Centrum. I actually don't. By the way, that's not medical advice. I don't know if it's good for you. Uh, they don't actually sponsor the episode, but call me if if you want to, Centrum, please. <laughs> but actually, speaking of sponsors, I'm going to take a quick second to shout out a legitimate sponsor of the show, um, longtime supporter of the show, and that is the folks over at Hero Forge. If you're like me and you're a little bit nerdy, or maybe you're not, maybe you're nerd curious and you just want to go and create the work of your dreams, uh, you can go to heroforge.com and you can do that. You can design on their 3D digital designer, literally any sort of fantasy, sci-fi, human, non-human, whatever character you want, thousands of options, customize them, get it printed, 3D printed, mailed right to you. Don't like painting? They'll print it in color, which is still bonkers. I've been talking about it for a year. I have them sitting in front of me. I don't know how it works, 
but it does. So you can paint it digitally right there. They'll ship it straight to you. They're fantastic. Go check them out. If you, even if you don't love tabletop gaming, maybe you want to make um, something cool for your kids. My daughter loves playing with my little, uh, with all my little characters and she couldn't, you know, care less that it's an orc from wherever. She just thinks it's fun. So maybe that's for you. Go check them out. Heroforge.com. We appreciate so much of their support of the show, bringing it to you uh, every episode now for two years. So hats off to them. Thank you, Heroforge. And, and Centrum, I'm available. Like we have another spot. You can call me. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have to check out that. I had not heard of it, of your sponsor before. I'm definitely curious. So I'm going to, I'm going to look that up after, after this, after this interview. I think they have a skateboard as an accessory that you can like design with your little, little 3D uh, miniature figure. So, you know, check it out. It's pretty fun. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I'm curious at what point for you did the crossover between content creation and skateboarding happen? And was that an intentional pursuit or did it just naturally evolve out of like your your presence in the space as like somebody who enjoyed skating? Yeah. Um, so, well, okay. So when I started um, working in the skateboarding industry, it was it was like late 2006. And so Twitter had like just come out, but like nobody knew what to do with it. I didn't really understand it. You know, it was just kind of one of those things. And I was a marketing coordinator because it was my first job, <clears throat> you know, I mean, like just straight out of college. And so... I wanted to work like I've, I've always been creative and I've always wanted to work in something creative and I always really liked marketing. And so I was like, well, I want to apply this to skateboarding. And so I got, you know, I, I got this job. Um, it was funny. I w- was working for this company called Blitz Distribution, which no longer exists, but it was um, owned by Tony Hawk and this other guy named Pear Wellender, who's an ex-pro skater. And so I always like to say that my first boss technically was Tony Hawk. Didn't see him too much, you know, in the office, but sure. a couple times. Um, but no, I, I like started just as like any other marketing coordinator, like before social media, it was really just like, okay, you know, like putting together like, uh, presentations, um, you know, collecting images from photographers to use for blog posts, really like a lot of things like that, helping out at events. But once I started like going to events, I started bringing like point and shoot cameras because sometimes, you know, it would be like, Hey, there's a demo or there's this thing that we're going to go to, you know, I would travel with like pro skate teams. And I was like, okay, well, I want to create content just to have it because we always have these needs, whether it's the blog or now this, you know, or now we have Twitter, which didn't allow photos at the time, but you know, it was like, let's start experimenting with this. And so, um, the first account that I got access to and that I started and then started updating for the company was birdhouse, which is Tony's company. Um, and Tony was on Twitter, like killing it. Uh, Tony had like, I think he was like in the top 10 for biggest followings in the world at that time. He was like really, really like big deal on Twitter. Uh, so I started doing that and then it, it just like, after like the passing of every year, eventually like almost felt like every month something new was happening with social media. Um, and more and more of my time was like going in that direction because as the marketing coordinator, it was like, okay, go explore this stuff. We don't know what social media is. We don't really care at this point. Um, we run print ads and we do video, you know, videos and video ads and stuff like that. Traditional advertising, um, but you know, explore this. So we're not like totally in the dark and it just became more and more important to the point where I think finally when it was around 2000, you know, like towards that 2012, mm-hmm. my like role was changing to include social media in the title up until then it was like marketing manager, uh, team manager, you know, marketing director, but social was always there. 
But I ended up, you know, transitioning so much of my time to working on social media for brands um, and the companies that I were, was working for that. Yeah, it eventually like was like, oh, this is like I'm spending 80 percent, 70, 80 percent of my time on social media. I'm definitely a social media manager. You know, I'm not just the marketing guy. Um, but it, it just really happened gradually. And, and as I started capturing content with the point and shoot before I was using the phone, I just really liked it. And I enjoyed taking photos of these guys. And I knew I was like, it was special to get to travel with pro skaters around the world. And I'm like, I need to capture this. Like, I need to have this even just for me to have right, like these yeah. memories, not just, you know, I was creating content also for like the websites and stuff like that. But once I really started getting into social media and once Twitter allowed, you know, photos, then I just went crazy. I was like, any trip we went on, I was posting to Twitter, prompting people to ask questions to pros, um, you know, and then I would answer their questions with the pro and there wasn't video at the time, but we, I would just, you know, I would get a photo of that pro skater and like then type have it the interview, yeah. type it out. Exactly. Yeah, I really loved it. From that point on, I always did something related to creating content because I just had so much fun doing it. And then eventually, yeah, eventually I was using my BlackBerry. That's what I had before my iPhone. And so I was using my shitty BlackBerry to capture these these photos and like get photos of the team. And I look back at them because I saved a lot of those photos and they all have like this awful green tint to them. Yeah, They're like yeah. grainy, like 640 tear. by 480 VGA. Oh, yeah. 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 So bad. And I actually, it was funny. We were doing, we were doing so well on Twitter that people started commenting like, hey, can you get a better phone? Like these photos are like kind of shitty. It's really interesting. You know, we're seeing photos of all these pros that we're into and you know around the world but like yeah. can you get a better can and that was when i got an iphone was like okay i need yeah. to step it up so then i got an iphone and yeah the iphone's been like my best friend ever since you know like i use it so much now that it's crazy to think of a time when it didn't exist or wasn't in my life you know and now i mean you know me as a, as a photo junkie like having one now where you've got multiple lens like the wide angle lens to me like the, or the ultra wide was like so oh, yeah. great, not just for having a kid and capturing widely distorted pictures of my kid, but just, yeah, for like, um, I was doing photojournalism for a long time. So I was at uh, NFL games and NBA games. And so like when I had that on my phone to be able to just like grab quick little stuff for social media, the flexibility of not having to swap a lens on or pull, you know, my DSLR out um, was just super awesome. And so like as a tool, it's fantastic. No, it's incredible. I mean, it's fun and, it, and it's it's interesting over time. I definitely, you know, when I was first doing social and I was capturing content, the professional photographers, videographers that would come out, you know, to film with the pro skaters, like they didn't think anything of it. They knew we had a blog, you know, we would try and make sure, you know, if we were at certain skate spots, like, and someone did something really crazy at it, it was like, okay, hey, please don't post a photo of that skate spot. We don't want it. You know, we want to keep that secret. So, you know, there was like little things like that that I had to be aware of, but mostly people just left me to my own devices. People yeah. didn't really know what to do with social media. So I'm just on there and I was just posting and putting things up and testing a lot of stuff, experimenting. But the phone became more and more important, especially as photos became more common. And then once, you know, Instagram was uh, created, like then it was like, okay, well, everything has to be photo now. And then now to the point where now it's it's like everything has to be video, you know, not everything, but a lot video is so dominant. And, you know, with TikTok, of course, you know, all the content I create is video. I, you know, I, I still shoot photos and I have a DSLR that I like to shoot with, but 
Um, yeah, the phone is just so much easier and captures things so much better than my than my DSLR does. Um, especially at events when you're like running around and yeah, you gotta, yeah, you got to jump over something to get to this, and you have the phone in your hand, and like it's just hard to do that with a camera. And I remember kind of like over time seeing the photographers and the videographers being like, "Hey, like you're in the way, or like can you not shoot this? And is this going to go on Instagram? Can you guys not, you know?" I felt their frustration, but like, it's, it's really fascinating because to the point now where, you know, Thrasher magazine, which is the biggest publication in skateboarding, one of the most important companies, just period in skateboarding. Um, you know, they have a full time social media content creator. He goes to events. That's pretty much like exclusively what he does. He goes to events, different things like around the world. And he just films on his iPhone and makes this amazing content. And that's just part of their, you know, that's part of the production team now is this guy just using his phone. It's pretty incredible, like where it's come, like where it started and where it's you should at. whip out the Blackberry sometime, though. You should you should bring it back. It's retro. It's vintage, right? Like you can call it that. Yeah. It's vintage for sure. Aesthetic. I do miss it for that reason. I When you look back at some of the photos, especially the photos I would take at night, I mean, they were insane looking, you know, right. everybody's eyes were like glowing like the way animals are when you take photos of them at night but it's like there was something kind of special about it you know too looking Mm -hmm. back at it looking back on it but sadly that uh blackberry no longer exists at least in my life i i think i traded it in um when i went to go get the iphone so if it if it were a nokia it would still be kicking those things will outlast us all if you had one of the nokia bricks bro i got in 2006 and it was like the 2005 model right but it was amazing. Yeah, you, you you could chuck it across. Sometimes on accident, I would be like, you know, at a bar, a little tipsy and not thinking. And you would just I would literally accidentally throw it out of my hand. And I'd be like, I'd go grab it every time you look at Good it. Go nothing. I didn't have a case for it. There was no glass protector like this thing is so fragile. You know, right. you got to have the case. You got to have the glass like the Blackberry was like indestructible. It was like a cockroach, you know? Yeah. I do love, and it's it's funny now, right? Like we're at that age where stuff we grew up with is now like officially vintage, uh, which is weird. But a buddy of mine was a photographer for the Houston Astros for a while, and they had a throwback night where they were, you know, going. I think they were wearing their '90s jerseys or something. But he he shot that whole game on disposable cameras, which you know, just like drugstore disposable cameras. And it was some of the best photos, like honestly, that I've seen of a sporting event because everything. Um, and technology does this, like everything starts to kind of like coalesce and everyone kind of shoots the same way. They're using the same technology. Therefore, they're like orienting themselves to like the strengths of whatever that might be, whether it's autofocus or a big burst or whatever it might be. And so having somebody like step out and give a completely different perspective, even though the quality was lower, but it was still, it was still film. It was 35 millimeter. It was fine. It was such an interesting look. And it was such like a different way to see something like we, we get used to seeing, especially sports because they're so constructed and um, you know, uh, uh, produced, we get used to seeing it a certain way, but whether that's angles or lighting or whatever. So something breaking out of that norm just made like a really beautiful kind of like photo essay. And I've, I think about that all the time. It was years ago, but I still think about those photos. I was using disposable cameras a lot just throughout my life, like as a kid, as like a teenager. And then as an adult, I haven't been using them in the last few years. It just hasn't been, but, but for a long time it was. And I have these photos that I, cause I would take this disposable camera with me on like skate trips and I have some of those photos and they're amazing because you can see the expression on people's faces when you would take it. Like, yeah. what is that? You know, especially the younger skaters, they'd be like, 
is that a disposable camera? Like I've, I've never owned one of those. And then I started, and then like Fuji came out with their Instax camera. Yeah. And I use that to this day. I've gone through thousands of photos with that Instax camera and I love it. Like it's a different, yeah, like you were saying, it's like a different feel. It has a different look and feel. It captures things differently. You know, when I take photos of people, they know, oh, we got to stay still. Like this is not a phone. Like we get one chance to do this. And, right. You know, the film's like not cheap either. So they know that. And I know that. So it's like, okay, I'm not just going to blow it on this. And so you end up just having these amazing photos. And I, actually, I would say that my insects photos on average, I think just because of the nature of that camera and like, it's, it's, you know, it's not a perfect camera or right. tool. I would say one out of three photos, one out of four photos is great. And, but when you get that, you know, you get those other ones and you toss them, but when you get the one that's good, it's like, Oh, this is the most badass photo I've ever taken. Like, yeah. So I know that I'll always, I'll continue to use that thing until they no longer exist. Cause I love shooting with that camera. I love them. And my, my daughter's four and she wants to use ours. And I'm like, these, it's like 20 bucks for a pack of this film kid. I'm not going to let you <laughs> shotgun through, yeah. <laughs> through a bunch of this. Give it a bit of time. <laughs> we actually found, uh, she doesn't know this. We're getting a camera for her for Christmas. Do you remember the old game boy camera? Yes. That you could print out the, the thermal printer. This is like the evolved right. version of that. It's literally a roll of thermal paper with like a high detail. The prints look great. They're black and white. It's a thermal printer. So you give it to a kid. It's like less than five cents a picture, I think, when it comes out to it. And so they can shoot and print their own stuff and see it right there. And it's not costing me an arm and a leg. So I'm excited yeah. for her. But I'm like, damn, like that's what I was playing with in like 19, you know, 98 or whatever it was. Just fully evolved. As soon as you said Game Boy camera i was like oh my and i didn't have it my friend had it yeah and when we were with him i just remember it was the most fun thing like to have them print out and be like and then yeah they were tiny but like they were so cool and were they st i want to say they have like adhesive maybe they had or a maybe sticker roll yeah you could you could right yeah. yeah and so i remember putting them like on my folder at school and stuff like that and man that's so cool i yeah she'll she'll probably love that yeah as a kid i loved it there was something magical about like I mean, and, and we grew up with like film and so you would take it and you would wait for it to like come back from the, you know, Eckerd's or wherever, Walgreens, wherever you went. And that was one thing. But I remember the first like digital camera experience I had and the first like digital camera I had was a Palm Pilot. And I wanted it because it had a camera on it. It was a Palm Zire. I remember it. And I shot 640 by 480, like tiny resolution. But like the idea that I could go and capture a picture and see it immediately. You know, I was like 11 years old or something. It was, I still shoot photos to this day. And so it's amazing yeah. what that yeah. first exposure can do to you. No pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. No, seriously. Yeah, you're right. And I don't remember how I think I just had an interest in video because I was like, of all our friends, I was the one that like bought the video camera. Like I had a friend whose family had an old school camera that was like, literally could hold a VHS tape. So when, yeah, we, first, yeah. when we first made skate videos, we would use that. And so you couldn't like edit it. It was like, you just had to film film and so like the tapes would come out and it was just like someone trying a trick over and over and over and then finally making it and then random footage of this and then when i got my camera and i had like the little you know i had it was a high eight camera sony camcorder once i got that thing it was like oh i want to do this all the time like this is all i want to do and i think yeah the camcorder eventually led me to get more interested in photography but yeah, from, from an early age, that was like, I definitely knew like I wanted to do that and capture my friends. And yeah, I just thought it was so fun. Just, and then, and then finally, like, you know, 
I wasn't editing really anything because I didn't have any programs. I was shooting on these little tapes. So I was, I would take that footage and then my friend had a program, like a really cheap program on his PC. And we would like edit skate videos from time to time. Like once we had enough footage, but that shit's like magical. Like, you know, I'll ne- it's like, I'll never forget that feeling of like filming your friends, hoping you got it right. Like hoping you filmed it. Okay. Chucking the footage. Oh, I got it. You know, cool. And then going and then editing it at your buddy's house. Like, um, we would even do like little premieres, you know, of our videos, like with each other, be like 10 of us in a room watching this thing. <laughs> like, right. But I loved it. Yeah. Basketball was my big thing. And it was the same thing. Like we, you know, we would, uh, in early high school go to like whatever gym church gym was unlocked. Um, and hopefully find one with a low rim that we could dunk on. And so there's still videos like that, that I'll send around of like my high school, you know, friends or they'll send in the group message. They're like, I made an edited in windows movie maker and, you know, 2002 or whatever it was that like of us dunking on an, on an eight foot rim, you know, set to, I, what, I don't even remember what's it like Requiem for a dream or something. I don't know. And it's like, it's just such a great, it's like, look at that silly thing we made, but like, it was so serious for us at the time. And like, it's still I'm still impressed by it. I'm like, yeah, I made that. That's actually pretty good. I had some cool angles. Like I did some cool cuts. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's a pretty, pretty cool piece of art I made. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned like the VHS camcorder and recording, you know, your friends falling and falling and finally landing a trick. Because one of my favorite things about your feed that at least for me differentiates a lot of, you know, stuff that I can see coming through my TikTok feed that are highlight focused of somebody landing a huge badass trick is you show a lot of times you show the progression of them falling and falling and falling before they finally get it. And I remember the first time I saw one of those videos from you, I was like, Oh, okay, cool. But like get to the point where he lands the trick. And now I love it because I love seeing it. It's, you know, we're talking about storytelling. It's encapsulating storytelling of like trying over and over. And then the crowd or the people there like being super pumped and psyched for this person. Clearly it's intentional. Like why do you take that approach specifically with those videos? Well, I can't say I created that like model. It was definitely influenced by skate videos that I would watch as a, as you know, a teenager and a kid. Like, but I always liked seeing like, especially pro skaters. Like I liked watching them try a trick and, and you would see usually in the credits, you know, or like a slam section, you would see the, the attempts and the falls and all that. But I always liked it because it was like when you're learning how to skate and you're watching their feet, you know, like how does he set up for his kickflip? How does he set up to do that? Like, oh, this person puts their foot way back, you know. And so when you're watching them like trying to get a trick and battling it, it's like you watch how their brain is like looking at each, you know, you see how they make like these slight adjustments. And that to me is what's so interesting is just watching this person figuring out as they go like okay next time i go i need to have my foot further back and then you see their foot further back and that's how they're able to get on and slide a little bit further or they do this and then now they're able to actually land maybe they don't roll away and i always just i always just love that and i think that skating too is just like people who don't skate i find are also interested in these clips because they're like they want to see the build-up to like you know, it's like that classic, like, oh, you know, you get a little bit, a little bit. And then it's like, oh, I want to see them land it. I got to see them land it. Um, but I just think it's fun because it shows how hard skateboarding is. Like skaters go 100%. through so much to get a trick. And people, I think people, you know, realize that, yeah, it's hard and they're not landing things just like, you know, every try. But like, you know, I've been to places where a person tries a trick for three hours and doesn't get it, comes back to that spot weeks later tries it again maybe doesn't even get that second trip 
finally gets that trick. And we know as skaters, like, oh, that was so gnarly what they did. But, you know, most people, it's like, oh, whatever. It's cool. But, you know, they don't know the story of like how much work went into it. And so that's what I love. I just like showing that to people, especially people who don't skate. Like, look, they're pro skaters, but they fall a lot too. And they try stuff over and over and over. It's like, you know, the monotony of a skateboard session, like at a skate spot. I mean, you just sitting there and watching your friend or, or like a pro skater trying a trick for hours. It's like, you know, it's, it's like, I, I, I feel like it's like with like fishing in a way, it's like, you really have to be patient. Like skateboarding teaches you so much about patience and being patient and just like not always getting what you want. You know, you're not always going to land that trick. You know, I, there's tricks to this day. I haven't learned how to do, and I've gotten really close like I never could do 360 flips, but I would get so close. And at this point, I don't think I'll ever do a 360 flip, but it was still really fun. I realized like attempting the trick, like just getting there and trying to get it. And even though I wouldn't land it, I still enjoyed like the process of trying those, you know, tricks. And I just thought that was something I wanted to show on TikTok because especially with a lot of kids being on TikTok, there's so many young skaters on there who are literally, you know, they're just learning how to like, push on a skateboard how to carve how to ollie and i think that showing them this gets them excited because it's like yeah you know like these guys yes these skateboarders are much better than you you're a beginner but like they still have to battle to get the tricks that they want to do and so do you and so i think it's hopefully i i think you know maybe it gives them just a bit of like that okay we're all we're all experiencing this you know just because they're a pro skater doesn't mean they land every trick first try you know Another thing that I like on your feed, and I'm sure this is super common because I see it on your feed, so I assume it is. But again, because I'm not in the culture, you know, skating constantly, there's this thing that happens apparently in skateboarding where hundreds, if not thousands, potentially of people get together and they they mob together somewhere outdoors, and then they create a tiny little Red Sea opening between them, and there's like a little ramp in the middle. And then people, I've seen someone dressed as the Joker or whatever, people just like yeah. book it and bust tricks or bust ass like going over this like, and it's and it is so close and so like chaotic looking like in your videos. What is that? Does it happen? Is it like a flash mob or is it like an intent? People are like, all right, it's time to everybody go queue up and we're going to we're going to push together and watch someone fly in the air three feet from our face. Like, what's that about? So you have your skate contest, your skate contest where you have like the judges And people have to do, you know, the prelims to get into the semifinals. It's all structured. There's areas where the audience can watch. And those contests are fun. fun. Like, I go to lots of them. But, like, some of the most exciting and just overall just fun contests are the ones that don't involve people actually really winning and trying to get, like, first place. And that's kind of what that – so that contest that you're talking about is called the Halloween Hell Bomb. So it only happens on Halloween. Okay, okay. And for years, they started doing it like in 2018. And it's this hill that goes to the ocean. It's it's literally three quarters of a mile from my house. So I go down the street and then there's this hill. A lot of people call it Cherry Hill. Um, and it goes down and you go around and it curves and it takes you to the beach parking lot. Um, it's like a perfect hill to bomb because it's not too steep. It's steep enough where you can ride it all the way through and not get the speed wobbles. I mean, you can, you could definitely eat shit on it, but you know, it's it's a really good hill, especially if you're learning to bomb hills. And in 2018, they just realized like, oh, we could do an event here. Like, 
And so these guys just started doing events. They got sponsors, but they didn't get permits. So a lot of those things that you see, they are not permitted. And police oftentimes will come, you know, halfway through or, you know, you're, you're lucky if you get like an hour, you're like really lucky if you get an hour of that. And um, this was the first year they got a permit, actually, that the city agreed to it. I think the city probably knew they were still going to do it regardless if they got the permit or not. So they just decided, look, let's make it safer and be able to know what's going to, you know, be able to predict like, that we'll have to close this part of the parking lot and not have it happen. And all these cars are confused while these skaters are coming down. But yeah, more and more, especially with event, like with Go Skate Day, which is, you know, the first day of summer, that's when Go Skate Day happens. Um, a lot of those mob like groups, they get together in like a plaza um, or some sort of area where a lot of people can congregate and then they'll just skate through the streets. They did it in Chicago, New York, like Philadelphia, and they just get these massive groups because the other fun thing about having the big group is like, it's way harder to break it up. And so even if the cops come, it's going to take them forever yeah. to end this thing, you know, and there, and the chances that you are going to get in trouble, pretty slim, you know? So I've, I've gone to a lot of things like that where, you know, you find, you learn that, okay, you got to be at this place at a certain time. All of a sudden you look around, there's hundreds or even thousands of people with skateboards. And it's like the most fun thing because it's just like, there's no pressure. It's not a real contest. You know, people are skating and they're beating themselves up and falling. And, but there's, you know, there's very little money involved in this thing. It's really just for like how fun the event is and how chaotic and like, it's like, you know, to me, it's like, that's what skateboarding was. That was so attractive. It was like this renegade thing. People didn't you know, get permits. They were jumping fences to skate schools. I just thought all that was so badass. And to this day, I still think it's awesome. Yeah. So those events, they are becoming like more and more common, like, and throughout the world, they have them all over the place where things like that are happening. But the one that I love the most is the one in Long Beach where I live. And that's called the Halloween Hell Bomb. And it's very famous and, you know, Thrasher always covers it. Um, so they always do like recap videos of it, but it's funny because that hell, Halloween hell bomb in 2019, that was the last time they did it properly. Like where they had like skate sponsors and they had like tons of people, but then COVID happened and then it would go on, but they like, they would do it, but it was a lot smaller. Okay. And that was actually at the 2019 hell bomb. That was when I filmed the video that became like my first viral video on TikTok was from that event. So was that the Joker one, like the dude in the Joker costume? Yeah, exactly. That guy just running into all those people. That was the 2019 contest. And really, actually, the last skate event I think I went to before COVID started, because that was end of October of 2019. So yeah. I'm pretty sure that was like the last thing I went to. And so when I'm on TikTok, I'm like, oh, which did I use? Oh, this footage is great. I'm going to mess with this and create an edit and, you know, just clicked with people. And that's, yeah, that's how it took off. So. Thank you, Halloween Hellbomb. <laughs> That's great, man. Well, so where where can people check you out? Where can they, you know, obviously follow you? And we'll put all the links in the show notes and when we tweet it out, assuming Twitter still exists when this episode drops. Um, we'll I don't even know another social media platform. The links will be there, but where can where can people check you out and see either what you're doing or if maybe they want to hire you or if they want to take your course, where can they find you? So I just created a website for my company, which is Schusterman Media, um, schustermanmedia.com. There you'll find, you know, my services and blog posts and, you know, clients that I work with and a link to my TikTok class. Um, So if you go to that website and you're interested in the TikTok class, go to schustermanmedia.com and you'll see the TikTok class is one of the 
the buttons there and it'll take you straight to the course. And then you can also find me on social, obviously. So uh, my TikTok is Schusterman1, like with the number one at the end. And I'm on there all the time. There's always new content. So um, I'm definitely more active on there than I am on my Instagram, which is just Schusterman. I couldn't get at Schusterman on TikTok. And at the time, I didn't really think much about it because it was like, whatever, this is my personal account. So I'll put the one at the end. So Schusterman on Instagram, Schusterman one on TikTok. Not bad. I mean, at least you didn't have to do like seven digits after the name, right? I mean, one, one, yeah, one yeah, almost exactly. sounds intentional. Almost. I have a name that's like kind of obscure. You don't yeah. meet a lot of Schustermans. I haven't met many in my life. And so whenever there's been a new social media platform, I almost always am able to get at Schusterman. So yeah, lucky. I, I, I used to really not like my last name as a little kid. It was hard to spell. And yeah, it was like yeah. people, it was like a mouthful for a lot of people. Now it's like, well, you know, at least I'm able to get the social handles that I want. So there's pluses, there's benefits. Yeah, definitely some benefits. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, I encourage everyone, um, whether you're into skateboarding or not, whether you're into content creation or not, go check Andrew's stuff out. Definitely give him a follow. There's just such great stuff there. I'm personally excited for this course. I am going to take it uh, because it sounds like the thing that could like jumpstart me to uh, actually being, uh, you know, a creator on TikTok, which seems like that would be fun. Um, if you enjoyed this show, you can also support us. You can go to patreon.com slash roll for persuasion and support the show. You get access to the video versions. If you want to check the video out, it's usually unedited. So technically you might get some extra content. You also get access to the bonus segments that Andrew and I are going to record here in a minute. And uh, something like, I don't know, 90 other episodes at this point of uh, prior content you can go check out. And it helps me. I like it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you can follow me on social media at roll persuasion on Twitter and Instagram and rollpersuasion.com. Andrew, thanks so much for coming, man. It, it's so good to finally like, connect. We've been talking about this for a while, so it's great to see you again. I appreciate you reaching out to do this. You know, I've only done one other podcast, and that was years ago. Um, so I was like, oh, I want to make sure, like, you know, kind of. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so you know, I kind of know how they go and how they. But being on one is definitely, you know, a different thing. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, at least get like a little cardigan on here look a little nicer <laughs> since this is going to be recorded yeah um, but yeah man that was super fun and like yeah thanks for reaching out absolutely absolutely and uh i'm sure we'll talk soon excited for the course to drop and uh thank you all of you for listening <laughs>